large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's, uh, let's pray as we consider this passage of Scripture this morning. Father, you know, uh, you know I come in weakness, a vessel of clay, and yet your power working in me, in us, is, um, is there. And we pray. We pray for it. We ask that you would be at work in our midst as we consider your word of Scripture, that you would unscramble my thoughts, bring clarity, bring your Spirit's power, and that those of us that are here would be helped in listening, hearing, and that hearts and minds would be pierced, and we would leave unchanged, or I'm sorry, not unchanged, changed, transformed by the power of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. So generally, our, our culture tends to assume, think that, you know, we, we, we were kind of Christian, uh, you know, kind of in our in our past, and we've kind of moved out of that, and, and really the worst thing would be to live your life following Christ, that Jesus confines and constrains your life, and the goal of your life is to be free as a bird, to kind of do whatever you want to do, define your world as however you like to define it. That's the goal, and Jesus puts these demands on us that we don't like. What John has been saying in John's gospel, which is where we just, we just read and where we are in, in, our, in our sermon series, John's gospel, John has been saying that Jesus is the word made flesh. He's the bones of creation. He's the lifeblood of creation. That, that all of creation is anchored, it's rooted in him. And life with Christ, consequently, is abundant. John 10.10, 10, that's what John says. Life with Christ is abundant. And, he's, and John has been showing us what this abundant life looks like. Think about the first miracle in John's gospel. Do you remember what it was? Jesus turns water to wine at a feast. And it really sets the tone for his whole ministry. And it's easy for us to think, well, water to wine. I mean, he's bringing people, dead people back from life. Like a party runs out of wine a little prematurely. Like the party planning committee of the party failed to account for the amount of wine. And that's, like, that's where he starts. It seems kind of trivial. But no, this is, this, is, this is the heart of who Jesus is. He came and, and he shows through that miracle the lavishness of Christ. The lavishness. Now think about it. He, and just to recap that miracle, he, he provides 180 gallons of wine at the end of that party. 180 gallons. Our family of five, just kind of rough estimates, we drink about 26 gallons of milk in a year. And we like milk. 180 gallons of wine for a couple of days? That's incredible. That's lavish in quantity. But it's not just lavish in quantity. The quality is lavish, too. Remember what the people say? This, this part, most of the time, parties save the bad wine for later. And this party saved the best wine for, la- for last, right? Jesus is lavishing his gifts to this party. And that's what life with Jesus is like. 
He lavishes himself. And Jesus, what Jesus has been saying throughout John's gospel is, come to me first and you will find your life deepen with joy. You will find abundant life. And this morning, our passage that we just read gives us a beautiful little picture of what life was like with Jesus at a, at a banquet. It's a banquet of life. It's a banquet with Christ, a banquet of life. Now, there's two points that we're going to consider this morning. The aroma of life with Christ. And then secondly, the aroma of life without Christ. And when I say the aroma, I'm talking about the feel, the, the tincture, the feel, the, 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 the ambience, the just the feel. That's the best way to put it. We, we, we go into certain places and they, sometimes, sometimes they just have a feel, don't they? Well, what's the feel of life with Christ? We're going to see that this morning. And we'll also consider the, the, the aroma of life without Christ. But first, the aroma of life with Christ. So Jesus is in Bethany, again, near, about two miles from Jerusalem. And he's enjoying a dinner, a banquet, celebrating the life that Lazarus has. New, Lazarus has new resurrected life. This is a very uncommon celebration, but they're celebrating it. Lazarus has come back from the dead. And by the way, this is a, about a week before Jesus' death. We're, we're at the midpoint, roughly the midpoint of John's gospel. And we've only got like six days left before he dies, seven, about a week left before he dies. So think about all the, the, the amount of scripture, and the other gospels are similar in this regard. They get, um, the amount of it is given to the last week and death of Jesus, Jesus because it's pivotal. It's, it's crucial. It's what he came to do. And so they're enjoying this banquet. It's marked by service. Look at verse 2. It says, they, they gave a dinner for, for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Each, each person is kind of doing what's become characteristic of them and what little information we have about this family, these characters, Martha, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, it's, you might think of it as like a little symphony of service taking place at this banquet. Now, Jesus, of course has served this family tremendously because he's brought life to Lazarus. But remember the cost. Remember what it meant for Jesus to leave the other side of the Jordan, to come back to Jerusalem, come back to Bethany. It meant his life. In order for Jesus to give Lazarus life, Jesus must give his life because in effect, that's what's happening. So Jesus is serving this family with his life and in a matter of days, they will see him pouring out his life as an offering for human sin. And then we see Martha as well serving and doing what we've grown accustomed to seeing her do. She's playing host. She's serving this banquet and providing food and doing all the things that she, that, that she does. She's being active, active Martha. And then we see Lazarus, who's the recipient again. All he does is receive. He's just receiving service. Now, uh, Jana brought to my attention a tweet thread that argued that Lazarus was special needs because he's never, he, he's living with his sisters. He's an adult living with his two sisters. He never speaks. Jesus is, is drawn to this family. So it makes sense that he's drawn to this family that has special needs. And so here's Lazarus being served. We, we, we don't know if that's the case, but it, it seems like a possible theory. 
but Lazarus is just receiving service of those around him. And then look at Mary, verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. She takes this pound of expensive ointment. It's, it's, it's expensive. We get actual, the actual cost of it. It would be worth thousands of dollars today in today's economy. It's, it's, a, it's a valuable thing. She just lavishes it upon him. She anoints his feet. She wipes his hair, or her hair. She wipes her hair on his feet. And at this point, the scene's getting a little, a little embarrassing. Mary's just kind of laying it all out there. Remember, in, in, this, in this time and place, a woman's hair was to be covered. To, to let it loose was a little edgy. And here's Mary just letting it loose and, and wiping her hair, or his feet, with her hair. The, the, you can imagine the crowd sort of ugh, getting a little nervous and uncomfortable at the sight. But Mary's worshiping the Lord with wild abandon. It's the same, Mary is showing us the same kind of lavishness that Jesus showed us at the wedding banquet. And now Mary, at this banquet of life, is pouring out a similar kind of lavishness to Jesus. It's a display of love and adoration for Christ. And Leslie Newbigin puts it like this, the love of Jesus is met and mirrored for a moment by the love of Mary. Just pouring herself out, pouring her wealth out, pouring everything out upon the feet of her Lord. Mary's being lavished just as Christ was lavished at the wedding feast. And this is, because remember what we said at the outset and what we've been saying, what John's been saying throughout his gospel, everything in creation is anchored in Christ. And so the lavishness that we see flowing forth from Christ throughout the gospels, the lavishness that we see that is a reflection of Christ's love that we see in Mary is the way the world really is. It really is that lavish and generous. It's gift. Indy Wilson uh, reflected on snowflakes. Let's just consider. Let's just consider snowflakes for a second. Just just a snowflake. Indy Wilson reflected on snowflakes, and he he was looking out his um, out his window on Christmas night in 2007. And he sees all these snowflakes swirling around. And he says, you know, just give me one snowflake in a microscope. And I could delight in its wonder for a long time. But God doesn't, God's not hoarding things. He seems to be almost wasteful with his beauty. And, and, and listen to what he says. He says, if, if, if we, he says, let's just, Let's just take a rough estimate, thinking about like how many, how many flakes are falling in this area, and we kind of stretch it back a few miles, stretch it forward a few miles. He estimates that swirling around their part of the state in 2007 are 11 trillion flakes above a small patch in Idaho on Christmas night in 2007. He says, just this storm, this tiny little slice of winter, could divvy out 1,700 flakes to every person on the planet. And that's just snow. If, if we looked at other parts of creation, we could see similar lavishness and generosity. This is how creation is, because creation is rooted and anchored in Christ, who has been showing us his lavishness throughout the Gospel of John. And now Mary, Mary all of a sudden at this banquet, 
is acting in step with creation because she's acting in a way that's in step with her creator, Jesus. Now, we had a few weeks ago at youth, there were lots of kids, and myself and Nathan Carroll were sitting upon two chairs and fielding questions from the youth, and they were asking all kinds of questions. But one question that came up was, uh, what's the Trinity? <laughs> or explain the Trinity or something like that. And it was, you know, how, whoa, how, how do you begin to explain that one? How, the Trinity is huge. Its implications are huge. So I want to I spend some time considering that for just a moment. God is love, the scriptures tell us. God is love. And the reason he is love is because he is triune. He is, he is Trinity. God the Father has been loving the Son, who's been loving the Spirit, and all of the persons of the Trinity have been submitting to one another in, in perfect love and harmony. It's a holy dance of love. And it all begins as God is Father. And listen to what Michael Reeves says about this. He says, since God is before all things a father, not primarily creator or ruler, all his ways are beautifully fatherly. It's not that this God does does father as a day job, only to kick back in the evenings as plain old God. It's not that he has a nice blob of fatherly icing on top. He is father all the way down. Thus, all that he does, he does as father. It's who he is. He creates as a father. He rules as a father. And that means the way that he rules over creation is most unlike the way any other God would rule over creation. The only way that God is love is because God is triune, that he can enjoy that love within the the, the persons of the Trinity. And so we can think of the love of God as this cascade of love that flows down. And the love of the Father came down to us in the person of the Son, Jesus, cascading down. right? And now Mary is sharing that kind of love, reflecting that love as she anoints the feet of Jesus, as the oil cascades down his feet. It's a picture of the love of God. And so here's what's happening at this banquet of life that we see. The people are serving. Uh, Martha's serving at part of the banquet. They're, being, they're, they're enjoying a, a great dinner. They're conversing. They're worshiping. Mary's worshiping the Lord made flesh. And then look at what happens. Verse four. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. All of a sudden, in the midst of all of this ser- uh, serving and mirroring of, of Christ's love, this sweet smell comes up. In the, from, the, from the ointment. It fills the room. So think about this. Lazarus is, was dead for four days, and now he's, he's alive again. They're banqueting. They're eating the best food that they can have. So banquet is, bring out the best. They're eating the best food they have. They're laughing. They're celebrating. They're worshiping with wild abandon, and all of it is accented by the sweet smell, the sweet fragrance that's filling the room. This is life with Jesus right here little picture of it, little little window of it. And it's abundant. It's abundant. Do you believe that? Do you believe that life with Christ is like this? That's what his promise is. Last week, we talked about a man who struggled with homosexuality. He was attracted, romantically attracted to men before he became a Christian. And he became a Christian. And he, he says that he never 
He never doubted Christ's call to pull him out of that. God gave him kind of a gift of, of an, that is an awareness of his goodness. He thought to himself, if, if, G, if God gave himself his life for me, then his ways must be trustworthy. His ways must be good. That while I may not like what he says about Christ's command to pull me out of my, my, my uh, sexual desires, it's where the good Jesus leads. And I can trust where the good Jesus leads because he poured himself out for me. That was his conclusion. And so the question is, do, have you arrived at a similar understanding of Jesus as being one who is worth entrusting your life to, even though it hurts, even though it feels like a death to your desires? That's his call. And the promise on the other side of that death is a feast, a banquet, all the things described here. John is, is showing us here in this passage that life with Jesus has an aroma, it has a feel, and it's marked by generosity, graciousness, attractive. I've been encouraged, and I want to encourage you for just a moment because I get to meet a lot of people that are first-timers at our church that have recently uh, come to visit, and one of the refrains that I hear quite often is that there is a warmth to this community, that there's a welcoming spirit, a generous spirit, a friendly spirit to this community. Amen. Like that, that's, that's, the, that's the aroma of Christ in this place. I believe it's, I believe it's the work of the Spirit, honestly, that's, that's in our midst, that God himself is conveying to those who come that this is, this is where you can find Jesus. This is a place where Christ is proclaimed, his good news of life. So praise God that that's, that's the case. By contrast, life without Jesus stinks. It stinks. And we see it here. We, we saw it last week too, actually, and we'll, we'll touch on that. We see it here with Judas. So this is aroma of life without Jesus. So Jesus is life. He's life abundant. And life, because, because of that, life apart from Christ is no life. It, it's, it's, it's actually death. And it has the stench of death to it. Look, look at verse 4. It says, it says, but, now again, let's just remember the scene. There's service, there's flourishing, there's worship, there's a sweet scent uh, 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 that, that fills the air. The light of Christ is in this place. That's another way that John has described Jesus as the light of the world. And here's the thing. This is what Leslie Newbegin again says. He says, the coming of light, when light arrives, it can't help but cast shadows. And wherever Jesus shows up, there's, there's shadows around and there's people around that, are, that, that, that don't like it. They don't like what's going on. They're in the shadows. They're in the darkness. That's part of the light's purpose is to, is to scatter those who are in darkness. They run to the corners like rats in a dark room when it turns light. They run to the darkness. And that's what's happening. And Judas here is in the shadows. And, and what we see time and time again in this gospel is when Christ, the light, arrives, those in shadows hate it. They don't like it. They don't like Jesus. And we see that here. And we see it here with one of Jesus' disciples. Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii 
and given to the poor, like sucks the life out of the moment, right? Like, uh, we could, we, Mary, we could have sold this for 300 denarii and given it to the poor, is what he says. It's the, it's the infiltration of stink into an otherwise beautiful party. And this is the first thing to see about life apart from Christ. It's very calculating. That's what Judas is doing. He's calculating the situation. He's calculating the ointment. And he doesn't like what he sees as wastefulness. And it makes sense. Because remember, Christ is creator. His lavishness is reflected in his creation that he has made. Apart from Christ, the world creation is scarce resources. It's not gift. It's, it's an accident. And there's only so many resources. And so that creates an outlook that is calculating, very calculating. It, and it works its way all the way down. We become, we become very measured in our kindness. If they are nice to me, I can respond in kind. We become calculating with others. We're measuring people up. This is, this is what life apart from Christ does. It starts measuring people up. They, they live in this house or they have that kind of car. They, could have, they should have given more money to the poor. I think they could afford to be more generous with their finances. Or they, you know, they don't have their life together, so they've clearly made some mistakes. And we're constantly, like Judas, we're just calculating, calculating others' mistakes, others' problems, others' failure to, to live the way we deem they ought to live. Now, you may say, well, but he cares for the poor, doesn't he? Look at verse 6. He, his, care, his care for the poor is a cover. Look at verse 6. He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. We see here that underneath the hood, Judas is being driven by greed much like Caiaphas in the council that we saw last week. Remember, the, the Romans are going to take away our nation and our temple. We've got to care for the people. But really what they were worried about was greed. It, it was a loss of their own power. That's what concerned them. And in the same way, Judas, is, he's, he's got this facade of care for the poor, but he doesn't care for the poor. In fact, he's being manipulative because he knows that Jesus cares for the poor. Jesus is all for the poor. He's been showing that throughout his ministry. And he knows Christ's heart for the poor. And he thinks that maybe he can get an amen from Jesus by saying, well, we need to give this to the poor. Judas, much like Caiaphas last week, is showing himself to be cold and critical. Remember what Caiaphas said, the high priest, to the council when they were deliberating? He said, idiots, you know nothing. You, he, this is what he said. You know nothing at all, which is to say, you idiots. It's, a, it's an insult. He's just being kind of a jerk. And Judas is saying, Mary, he doesn't say it, but he's saying it through what he's saying. Come on, Mary, don't be stupid. You just wasted a whole thing of ointment. Give it to the poor. And here's the thing. His care for the poor is is a lot like our own kind of concern for the poor. Like, we, we care for the poor in the abstract, right? When it's like the poor, kind of this general mass that's somewhere out there but not near us. The poor, we, we do care for the poor in that regard. And Judas cares for them in that, in, in that regard too. And here, here's, here's the fright, frightening thing about this. G, Judas is with 
Christ physically. He's one of Jesus' disciples. Judas is the kind of guy that walks into a church door to spend time with Jesus, isn't he? He's a disciple. He's a follower of Christ. He's in proximity to Jesus. And for that reason, this should be a, this should be a sobering thought for us, that Judas is the kind of guy that shows up at church. Because in this regard, um, churches can be really dangerous places. They can solidify and reinforce self-righteousness. They can, solidify, they can make us hate others more. Those people that waste their time, they don't go to, they're sleeping in right now. They're probably having brunch right now, enjoying brunch. Those people that don't go to church. Mm. That's, that's, that's a Judas comment, right? Listen to what Eugene Peterson says about churches, religious places. He says, sometimes I think, All religious sites should be posted with signs reading, beware the God. The places and occasions that people gather to attend to God are dangerous. They're glorious places and occasions, true, but they're also dangerous. Danger signs should be conspicuously placed as they are at nuclear power stations. Religion is the death of some people. And... Religion will be the death for Judas in just a week. He will take his own life. He will take his own life. His, his greed, which we see here, trumps his following Christ. It trumps it, and he rejects Christ. He turns Christ over, and it, he rejects the life. And what happens? He dies. Life without Christ. Death. He takes his life. And it's, it's a tragedy. Dorothy Sayers, in a, in a moving part of Uh, a little book called Creed or Chaos, says this, that Judas committed the final, the fatal, the most pitiful error of all. He despaired of God, and he never waited to see resurrection. He saw the death of Christ. He saw the dreadful payment made and never knew the victory victory purchased with the price. If, If he would have just waited... But he despaired. He didn't wait on Christ, and he took his life. Verse 7, Jesus says, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for my day of burial, for his anointing, which, which is to say, in, in many commentators say, what she's doing, she's anointing him for his death, his coming death. For the poor, Jesus says this, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And so Judas here is plotting, planning, pondering in his heart the death of Christ. In just days, he will turn him over. And, but he's not the only one. This whole passage, this little banquet of life is flanked by death. We saw it with the council last week, Caiaphas planning the death of Christ. We see it with Judas, who's going to betray Jesus, turn him over. And we see it in verse 9. It says, when the large... Uh, crowd of the Jews learned that Christ was there. They came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests, verse 10, they made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Christ. They, They want Lazarus dead. Christ came to give because creation is gift. 
Christ, its creator, is gift. He came to give. And the world, what does it do? It takes. The world is scarce resources. It takes. And they're going to take the life of Lazarus, a man who just experienced the touch, the healing touch of Christ. And one of, one of the points to draw out here is that this is the Christian call. Many in the faith have died because of their association with Christ. All of the apostles, to our knowledge, died a martyr's death because of their association with Christ, because of their preaching Christ. Now, I want us to close by considering the question about uh, Judas here. You know, Judas charges Mary with not being, Judas says, you were not, uh, you're wasting this ointment when it could be given to the poor. That's his charge. But the question is, is, is Judas even right? Frederick Bruner says this, this week, Jesus is the poorest man in Bethany, and Mary's serving him. And he's the poor, her care for Jesus at the height of his emptying, at the height of his poverty, at, his, at, his, at the beginning of his full descent into death, even death on a cross, she's pouring her, her riches and wealth to him because he's, enter, he's, he's about to enter our poverty of spirit. He's about to take on our sin upon himself and receive all that is due it, death, condemnation, judgment, so that we can get the spiritual riches that he gives us the infinite wealth, the blessing, the righteousness, the qualifying record of obedience that is Christ becomes ours through his death. And so Mary here is not neglecting the poor. She's pouring herself out to a Jesus who is emptying himself through his death on, on the cross. Now, this little window into the life of Christ, this little, this little banquet of Mary and Martha at their home in their town, is a little slice of heaven on earth, isn't it? But notice, remember, death is swirling around it. And so it is with Christ's kingdom. It's here. It has arrived. And if you, if you want to see the most poignant expression of the kingdom of God, come to churches. Come to a church. It's a, a church is a colony of heaven. It's a little site where Christ is proclaimed as Lord. Christ is worshiped as Lord. It's a little foretaste of what's to come. But in the meantime, Churches are surrounded by a world bent on death, a world bent on itself. Just like the, 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 you know, the fragrance that filled the, the, the house in the room where Mary pours the ointment out, it's true, it was ointment, that's what, the, that's what the passage says. But we might also say that there's another fragrance that's filling the room. It's the fragrance of Christ. It's the fragrance of life, truth, beauty, light, goodness. And what began in that little house on that day has been spreading over, over the centuries, over the millennia, as the word of Christ spreads across the globe. And one day, Paul says, this fragrance, this aroma of Christ will fill the earth. He says this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we, we thank you for this little window into life with Jesus. We confess that there are a lot of lies swirling around about um, what, who you are and what you came to do. And we pray that you would center our thoughts of you on your word and that your spirit would keep us centered on your word and that we would find, taste the beauty, particularly as we come to your banquet, uh, this meal, the Lord's table. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We have a response, and that is to uh, confess our faith.